Research Pages, a podcast all about supporting academic research. I'm Neve Page, a librarian at the University of Cambridge. And I'm Andrew Page, a computer scientist from the Quadrum Institute. We are both information professionals supporting research, but coming from very different angles. We hope you enjoy listening. So today we want to talk about peer review which is a really important part of the publishing process and something we've both experienced. I've less experience of it than Andrew does, but uh, have had a bit of opportunity to do it. Yeah, like I've been doing it for at least 15 years and I've reviewed countless papers. I can't even remember uh, half the papers that I've reviewed for even the journals, but it is an important part of publishing and academia. Uh, So I'm, because I'm not actually a researcher, my focus has been more on one particular journal that I find very useful, the Journal of Information Literacy. It's an open access journal that uses practitioners as well as researchers in the peer review process. And that's given me a great opportunity to understand what some of our researchers are expected to do by doing it myself as well as getting an early sight of some of the the research that's getting published in the field and so that I can incorporate it into the teaching that I do in the university. And I reviewed for many computer science journals, um, which are very different then to what I've been reviewing recently, which is more bioinformatics and uh, computational biology focused papers. And each of those areas have very different expectations from simple things like how long it takes, how long you're expected to give a review back in. You know, one is measured in days, the other is measured in weeks. So we thought it'd be interesting to explore all of this in a, in a podcast, and here we are. So um, in terms of what's involved in the process, the idea is that a researcher has written a paper about the work they've been doing, and they submit it to a journal, And the journal doesn't just publish it as is. They send it off to a couple of, usually a couple of different reviewers, ask them to read it, give some independent feedback on it. The idea is that it should be constructive, so it should be helping to strengthen the paper. They'll decide whether the paper is a good fit for the the journal, whether the quality of the research is adequate, whether there are ways to strengthen it further. And it's generally both unpaid and anonymous although some of that's changing a little bit and of course if your paper isn't peer-reviewed then it is going to be a white paper or tech report which are quite common so that's why you'll see a lot of companies will have white papers and they may be slightly more marketing material or slightly dubious but they haven't gone through the peer review process so they can't Mm. claim it but it's worth being aware as well that actually not all journals use a peer review process there are lots of dodgy journals out there that don't so one to watch for peer review is a sign of a journal that is at least making some attempt to be a proper academic journal rather than just a money spinner yeah there are a lot of spam journals and predatory journals out there which just want your open access fees and those journals are a bit of a problem because people found that you can submit uh, any old crap to some of them and it'll get published even automate automatically generated uh, papers i think that's a whole conversation for another day though it absolutely is <laughs> so will we move on to exactly how it works yeah talk about your experience of it andrew so When a paper comes to me to be reviewed, the editor has already given it a courtesy look and sometimes the editor will reject it at that point and send it back to the author saying, well, you know, it's not really a fit for our field or our readers won't really like it. Um, But when it comes to you, 
generally you'll get it by email and they'll give you an abstract or they might give you the full paper it's generally they don't give it full paper in advance because then you might re you might choose not to review it um, and what I look for certainly is do I know the authors am I conflicted in any way being in a small area quite often I am conflicted because maybe I've worked with people quite closely in the past or this kind of thing and you have to be very careful because you want to give an honest independent review you don't want to um, be dishonest in that way. So how does that work though if you're in a really really tiny field and there are a really small number of people qualified to really comment on that paper surely it gets to the stage where you know almost everybody in your field. Well then yeah you have to be careful because there's a difference between your mates at a conference versus someone you've actually maybe had as an employee mm. or you've worked very closely we've published papers with as co-authors mm -hmm. or you've got an active grant and those are really the lines you don't want to cross or maybe they're in your same institution as you mm. um, and that can be a problem so you have to be very careful. So it's about the difference between wanting to support colleagues in your field and if you were to get involved with 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 strengthening a paper or passing a paper where you had a vested interest in that particular person's success. I see. The editor will usually send you a login to a reviewing system. And these, of course, vary in quality quite massively. Uh, usually they'll set up a, some kind of username and password for you as well automatically. And I've ended up with quite a few of these. And so what systems have your journals, the ones you've worked with, used? So the most common one that I found in, in certain bioinformatics is called Editorial Manager. It's a commercial system. A lot of journals use it. And for each journal, you get a different login. And for each email address the reviewer or the editor happens to find for you, you get a different login. And so you quite quickly end up with about 20 or 30 logins. You it know, it sounds like something that could be streamlined. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> something I'd love to be streamlined because I can never remember the passwords. I always have to click forget, you know, forgot my password. Mm. What on earth is going on here? I'd imagine that might actually put some people off doing it, actually, if it's too much of a faff to even get in to accept the request. It is a bit of a barrier, actually, mm. yeah. Um, and also, then I forget, because the same system is used for submitting papers quite often. Mm. And so remembering, am I submitting a paper or am I a reviewer with which account? And it, can just, <laughs> it just gets a bit messy very quickly. That's the advantage of only doing it for one journal. You know exactly what your password is and it's, uh, it's way, way more straightforward. If only it was that easy. <laughs> Unfortunately, I get quite a lot of uh, different reviews for different journals. But so, how do you decide which ones to, to do? So some journals will give you a deadline. Uh, some of them can be just insanely short, like seven days, and they forget that maybe people have holidays or weekends exist. And often you'll get, um, because of time zone differences in the world, you'll get review requests um, late at night mm -hmm. or early in the, in the early hours of the morning. And then they send you nagging emails telling you to accept. And you're thinking, hang on a second here. I've had zero working days and you expect me basically <laughs> to give up my time to click uh, and accept your review request, which isn't really a good thing. Mm. The other extreme is computer science journals, which give you an insanely long period of time. So maybe six weeks or eight weeks. But the difference there is that it can take maybe a year, two years to get a, a paper published in computer science, whereas in bioinformatics and computational biology, it can take maybe 
a month, you know, it can be very, very quick because the area is changing so rapidly. But that seems counterintuitive to me. Surely computer science is a rapidly changing field. I've heard from some of our researchers that actually they don't even bother publishing in journals because it's because but they but they're they put more stock on the conference papers because they can get them out quicker and they're more valuable with the with the rate of change in the field. Well, actually, with computer science, they're not going to tell you this, but everything was solved in the 1970s, and it's just a rebranding exercise ever since. So what was the point to do to PhD? Okay, let's not go there. <laughs> PhD, yeah, computer well, science. Yeah, <laughs> well, again, it was all solved in the 70s. Okay. Anyway, um, usually uh, the editor will send it out to maybe two or three reviewers. It can be more. Mm. Um, and you submit your comments. You'll say, maybe accept this paper with no changes. That never happens or major revisions, minor revisions, or rejected outright. I remember you saying to me one time that if it comes back with no comments, it's an indicator the person hasn't actually read the paper because there should always be some kind of feedback that will strengthen it. Absolutely. And you always get, they call it a reviewer number three who's put something crazy in. Mm. And uh, maybe they haven't understood the paper, it's outside their domain. But mm. if you ask them for a comment, they'll always give you a comment, whether it's good or bad. So if you end up with... Uh, reviewer number three as you describe it then how do you decide whether or not it's worth listening to or how important it is to to respond to that if it's so left field so the editor often will come back with maybe a summary of all the reviews and tell you what you need to change overall Mm. including all the reviews but those reviews also get sent to the other reviewers and those reviewers can actually go back to the editor and say this is ridiculous and i've seen Mm. that a few times where people have been very, very silly in their comments. That's really interesting. I don't think when I've reviewed, I think I've only once seen the other reviewers' comments, and it was when that person had been asked to make quite substantial changes on the basis of the comments, rather than when I when there's only been more minor changes. I, I certainly would never have seen the other reviewers' comments at all. So the authors will send back response to reviewers' comments, mm. as long as it's not rejected outright. Yeah. And as a reviewer, I have to review it a second time or a third mm. time or a fourth time, however many times it comes back. Yeah. But you can put in confidential comments to the editor, and that's where you'll say, reviewer number three is not <laughs> really saying things that are sane. Mm. And actually, this is fundamentally a really good paper. Yeah. Because you have to understand, people have spent a lot of time on this. They've put in maybe months or years of work. Yeah. And they're not just throwing it out there lightly, usually. Mm. They are actually trying their best. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And then at the end, the editor will inform them of a decision. But, mm. you know, if you've gotten through a few rounds of review, it's probably going to be accepted at that mm. point. Or what a lot of people do is if it gets rejected, they put it into a different journal and mm-hmm. they just go around journal shopping. Yeah. Again, another whole other conversation. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Hierarchies of journals. So I suppose the other thing to talk about is the fact that all peer review is not created equal. There are different types of peer review. Absolutely, yeah. So um, the kind that I've experienced has been double blind, where you have a couple of reviewers and you don't know who the other reviewer is. You don't know who the author is, that whose paper you're reviewing. The author doesn't know who either of the reviewers will be. Um, so it's the idea being that that can be really, really objective and um, people people can say what they really think in their review. So I, I've submitted double blind papers, but in my field, it's ridiculous because you have to X out, say, all of your software repositories mm. and things like that. 
But then how can the re- how can the reviewers actually look into your paper and, uh, and get mm. an understanding of how it works? You can usually guess. As a reviewer, when I get a, a paper that's uh, double blind, I can guess simply by how many, who is the most common person who is cited in, mm. the, in the references? That's an interesting thing that just um, popped into my head there while you were talking, which is with the drive towards open research and increased push towards having the data published that underpins the research as well, and an expectation that that would be, the, the link to the data should be included in the paper. If you're, if you're really wanting to check on how well the research was conducted and you want to go to the stage of actually seeing the data that underpins it to see does it all make sense, it seems very hard to keep that fully anonymous. Some journals will ask you as an author to put in maybe tiny URLs, you know, shortened mm-hmm. links to slightly obscure, say, a piece of software or mm-hmm. a website. But, you know, you just click and then you see immediately. Well, exactly. It's not that hard. Yeah. Interesting. Sorry, that's, again, another hole. We should do another one on open research sometime. But um, double-blind in my field is very rare. Normally, it's just single-blind review where the reviewer knows who they're reviewing the paper for Mm -hmm. and the authors don't know who the reviewers are. That seems easier to manage, certainly in a field where there is uh, data or software underpinning the research. It seems silly to even pretend that you're able to make a double-blind Oh, absolutely. It's mm. it's a game, you know, to figure out yeah. who is the author or for the authors, who is the reviewer based on <laughs> their comments. Because often you go to conferences or you'll meet people and you'll recognize some of the phrases or some mm. of the comments they make. And you're like, oh, yeah, I think that's that person. <laughs> or they might be your biggest rival because yeah. your field might be so small. Or they might just ask you to add citations to this person's research. <laughs> that, well, that's really unethical if you're asking to cite your own papers. And I'm that's sure something it you shouldn't happens, really do. Though. I'm sure it happens. Unless it's a major paper in the field. But I, I have heard of cases where mm. people have asked, you know, here's a list of papers, yeah. cite them. Yeah. It's, it's unethical, really. Yeah, yeah. And I presume then the author can tell the editor that. But I guess it must be really difficult for the less experienced researchers, so early career researchers or PhD students who really are publishing for the first time, to know, I mean, it's such a big deal for them to publish a paper at all. And then to get this thing saying, please cite these papers, it must be quite hard in that position to turn it down or if, to know that you can turn it down. If the editor is doing their job, they should be cutting those out and mm. not allowing it and it will be obvious because the editor will know who the reviewers are and they'll see mm. the papers and yet you've seen it happen though yeah and the editor didn't so nope. i guess the editors obviously all approach the rules differently depending on the journal or every journal experience. is different every editor is different mm. and standards can be different you know mm-hmm. there is a new trend in open peer review that's really interesting one so the idea being that um, the people, both the author and any any readers of the paper in future, know exactly who wrote the review and who, what they said and what the feedback was. And there can be actually the idea being that 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 allows for a much more open discourse about the paper and and its merits or areas it needs strengthening in. Seems brave to me though. So, a lot of review, if it's anonymous, mm. you'll say things that maybe you wouldn't say to a person's face. Mm. And I think it helps to keep people honest because mm-hmm. you're not going to get a sly dig in. Mm-hmm. You'll say things nicely and politely. And I think open review is much better. There's different degrees. So you can just sign your review 
and the authors see who it was by. Mm. Or in some cases, some really new journals actually published reviews along with your name and the paper. Mm-hmm. So you can see the full history of how everything is done. I'd be curious about uh, the extent to which that biases who will be willing to review for that journal. So whether there are certain types, certain genders, certain backgrounds that feel more confident to be able to put a review out there with their name on it more publicly like that. And others that maybe shy away from doing that. Maybe they don't have that level of confidence, no matter how brilliant their research is. Yeah. So Mm. I I did find it a bit weird the first time I did it. I thought, Mm. oh, my God, I'm going to get someone ringing me up on the phone complaining about Mm. my review. Yeah. But actually, it didn't happen at all. So and is there a risk, though, if you do that, that people will be too nice and won't be critical enough? I mean, constructively critical, but, you know. It is possible, yeah. Mm. But at the same time, I think that people appreciate honesty mm. and they do often take criticism quite well. Not criticism, but... Constructive criticism. Constructive enhancements. Yeah. And it, I think it's a good thing overall and I've had some really good discussions with people one of my papers mm. I discovered three of the three reviewers uh, mm. one of them uh, actually signed the review and then the others came forward and said oh I did that mm. and it's a great paper and thank you very much I wonder if there's been any study of the impact on who's willing to review yeah no that is an interesting one one to investigate maybe so you can get some credit for your reviews mm. because normally you don't get any at all and it's pub lawns and they kind of integrate with the some journals or you can upload your own reviews to get a little bit of... A bit of credit. A bit of credit, yeah. Mm. Just to say, I've done this piece of work. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I think that's a really important point when you're talking about it, I'm getting a sense of just how labor intensive it is. I find it, I find it, it's hard work, but not too much when you get a request every six months or so. But it sounds like for researchers whose, whose role is to produce a lot of research and especially for those that are higher up in their field, that it's, it's an enormous time commitment. It is. And the kind of rule of thumb is that for every paper you submit, you should review three or four papers because, you know, there's other people doing you a favor by mm. reviewing your papers. And that's quite reasonable, but it can get very overwhelming pretty quick. Mm-hmm. I've had some cases where I've had a few requests to review papers in a day mm. and that's unsustainable. I have a real job, you know, yeah, yeah. and this isn't part of my job. It is something I do a little bit extra as a professional thing. Yeah. And But I do see it as important because it helps people to develop and you're giving some really good feedback, hopefully. Not nitpicking at where the commas are. Actually, (laughs) I I ignore um, grammar and spelling and English. Well, that's for the copy editors, isn't it? Absolutely. You can outsource that. Mm -hmm. It's I I really want to know the content and fundamentally, is this scientifically sound? Mm -hmm. Can I reproduce it? Is the data there? Is... uh, this something that other people will be interested in or is it just kind of run at a mill mm. obviously different journals have different criteria so some like uh, plus one if it's science done well even if it's a negative result they'll publish it whereas other journals won't publish those kind of things so mm. you ha- as a reviewer you have to understand what the journal wants yeah that's actually a whole other topic as well the the problem of uh, the the bias in scientific research towards 
towards the things that give results and um, positive results there's far fewer papers that show things that didn't work as expected and those are just as important and i wonder how many people end up chasing the same trail that somebody else has actually already taken but because they came to either a negative result or it just didn't seem too interesting the result they came up to somebody else repeats that research not knowing it's already been done that seems a bit short-sighted really oh, you can always publish everything everywhere <laughs> um yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, but if you do get multiple requests on the same day, how do you decide which ones to, to do and which ones not to do? Well, I have to filter. So I would do things like if it's a commercial profit-making journal, I usually say no. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what I usually say is I will review it if you pay the full economic cost of my time. <laughs> Has anyone ever said yes to that? No, absolutely not, because <laughs> they wouldn't. Mm. But also then, you know, are they an open journal Mm. um, or is it behind a paywall? Yeah. Because I'm not going to review for a journal where I can't even read the paper. That's just ridiculous. Yeah. Um, But so why do you do it when it's so much work? Because I write papers and then I expect other people to give their time for free. Mm -hmm. So it's just one of these things you do as to give back to the community and Mm -hmm. to keep it all ticking over. But I am careful about what I do. So what are the other reasons for doing it? One of the big things you get out of it is early access to papers. And in the traditional model, you might get access maybe up to six months or a year in advance before it actually comes out in a physical hard copy journal that's been lovingly edited (laughs) and is very pretty. Yeah. But actually preprints are destroying that model because most people, well, in my field certainly, are as soon as they hit submit, they pop it up onto a preprint server like BioArchive or Archive, mm. or even better, they put it on BioArchive and then they uh, you can submit to many journals from there from directly there. without mm-hmm. having to reformat uh, in 20 different journal styles. Yeah, I think that's one of my reasons for doing it as well, is um, the types of papers that the the journal I review for tends to send my way are ones that are specifically within my areas of interest. So it does tend to be worth my time. It's it's usually something that I can then look at the sorts of the sorts of training that because it's on information literacy, which is how well people can find, manage and work with information and and, and share it with other people. It it means then that I'm able to see what other people are doing very early in terms of helping their students or researchers learn those skills. And then I'm able to apply it into the actual day job of what I do. And then, of course, you know if you're going to be scooped next week. (laughs) Well, yeah. (laughs) But in terms of what you actually get out of it, you don't get any money. Um, Sometimes you get your name in an, an issue once a year thanking older viewers. But... Actually, the norm is getting nothing at all out of mm. it. You're just forgotten. But I guess it is the point that you made earlier on that that's not the point. The point is not the credit. The point is it's part of how the system operates. Yeah, but I'd like some acknowledgement that mm. I've done a little bit of work. And actually, the nicest thing I ever got was a little booklet with decorative stamps from, I think it was a Chinese journal. Very obscure. But it was a lovely touch. It was just... It's monetarily, it's virtually no value, but it was just a really nice token. Well, it probably meant more because so few of the other journals bothered to do anything. Well, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> Sometimes it might send you a credit saying, 
if you want to submit your paper to this journal, we'll give you like $100 off the open access charges. Which brings us on to the whole cost of knowledge campaign that happened a few years ago. That was interesting to watch. So the whole idea being that academics are um, doing all this work for free. And then certain publishers that shall remain nameless make incredible amounts of profit on this free labour. So the content is written for free. The peer reviewers do their work for free. The journals do do some things in terms of the copy editing, although some of them don't even really do much of that. And yet they they can make enormous sums of money and charge academics for the privilege of publishing with them. So the idea of the Cost of Knowledge campaign was to get researchers to say that they would not publish with certain publishers because of this whole problem and to say, I'm not going to publish with you, I'm not going to review for you, I'm not going to take be an editor, I'm not going to do any of these types. Well, people also had the option, actually, that's one of the nice things about it, they could choose... I'm going to do nothing for this particular journal. Or if you're an early career researcher and felt that actually you needed to be able to do that because your future career might be on the line if you didn't, then you could say, well, I'm going to do this type of work, but I'm not going to do any peer review, which doesn't give me any direct credit. And um, and it is just pure profit then for the journal. Well, I have to count for my time. And my boss, if I told him, oh yeah, I'm spending a few hours reviewing a paper, he'd be mm. like, well, why? You know, I'm paying you to do a different job. Yeah. So actually I spend some weekends, say early in the morning, mm. reviewing papers when I should be maybe lying in bed. So sometimes uh, I find actually when a paper has been rejected, that I've rejected, it pops up again in my inbox. And <laughs> you're asked to again. review it a second time. <laughs> reviewed for a second time or a third time with a different journal. Mm. And the authors have made no changes whatsoever. So what happens in that context? I mean, has it ever happened that actually you've looked up and said, it wasn't right for that journal I was asked to review it for before, but actually this, this particular journal is a better fit. Or do you just write back to the editor and go, they've already tried it. I've already refused this for somewhere else. I'm a reasonable person and I understand people need to get stuff published for their career development, but if they've made fundamental errors and they haven't corrected those, I'm just going to send it straight back again and I just tell the editor straight up, I've rejected it. Here's a mm. copy of the reviews that they didn't bother to, to read, mm. you know. And it's like that. And actually often the editor will then go back and reject it straight out without mm. getting any more reviews. Yeah. And then the whole question of how they choose who to do the reviews, how do they do that? As a corresponding author, when you submit a paper, usually in my field, you're asked to suggest some reviewers. So you give their names, their institutions, their emails, and a reason why you think it should be a reviewer. And you might suggest three to six reviewers. Mm. I know it's not like that in all fields. And that gives the editor some options to pick people now, obviously, you have to pick them very carefully because you want people who are going to give you a reasonable, fair and honest review. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, you want to make sure they're the ones who review it and not someone else. Because if they decline, then you could get someone totally different or mm-hmm. your biggest rival. And so it's a bit of a, a fine art. But surely it's a good thing to get your rival because then they can challenge the paper. 
constraint. Well, you know, politics plays a part in many <laughs> cases. And if there's two people in the field and the other person doesn't like you getting all the grants and all the papers, you know, it can be difficult. Mm-hmm. So, but why do they do that, though? Surely the editors would rather they had more control over who reviewed it rather than you potentially picking your mates to read your papers and, and give you a, a get it passed when it maybe isn't strong enough yet. So editors, I know, have a hard time finding mm. reviewers for all the reasons we discussed earlier. Mm. And sometimes they have to go through a big long list of people before they get one to accept. Mm. So at least if you're suggesting some, there's a higher likelihood that these are the right people in the field to be reviewing your paper. It is an art, though, because you don't want people who are so busy at the top of their field and who will reject a review request. You want someone maybe early career, mid-career, who knows a lot about your field and probably isn't getting too many reviews because it's not an even distribution. It is, if you're early career, you might get zero review requests in a year. Mm-hmm. But then if you're really famous and you've got lots of nature papers, you might get a couple a day. So you want to target people who really do know the area and maybe aren't overwhelmed and mm-hmm. maybe have that spare capacity to do a review for you. But if you've got, if you're being asked to suggest a, a number of reviewers, maybe include some of the really high profile ones along with some of the early careers and some of the mid careers, so that you have more of a distribution in at least what you're recommending. Well, yes, and mm. also a distribution in the type of person. So, mm. say it's a a paper involve, involving biology and computing and software, you may have reviewers who could cover multiple different areas mm-hmm. because you want to get a fair representation and fair skill set. So the peer review systems that I've encountered have been quite varied and there's been huge progress, like really, really, really good ways of uh, doing it now that, over the past few years. Are there any you think are particularly good? Um, yeah, actually, I've had a really nice review and submission experience with PeerJ, mm-hmm. which I find it's a, quite a different way of doing things and it's quite a nice journal. So it's one I definitely recommend. They've just put a lot of thought and effort into how does it actually work and Mm -hmm. how will a normal person try and use it and what should they be doing just to take away a lot of the mundane stuff and the, I I suppose, they've smoothed all the the corners out. So what are the sorts of things then within that that make it a better experience than one of the other ones that you've used? So trying to automate a lot of the stuff for you. Mm. Um, The best one, though, I've ever encountered or my personal favorite is called the Journal of Open Source Software. Mm-hmm. And they have this really amazing automated system. Absolutely everything is done in the open on GitHub. So every single communication between the editor and reviewers is in an, a GitHub issue. So it's like a, a chat mm-hmm. and anyone can see it. So the, the authors can see it. And you can see as it progresses, as a reviewer ticks off every single thing that you've done correctly or not correctly, mm. you can see it live. And you can also see when they say, actually, I'm not going to make this change and here's why. There is also, you get to see all the reviewers' comments mm-hmm. and they get to see your comments as you respond to each reviewer the other viewers can see. So it's all completely open. Mm-hmm. And that's lovely. Like, it's a very different paradigm. This particular journal, uh, JOS, the Journal of Open Source Software, is all done on GitHub, and it's it's about software. So you're trying to get credit for doing some really nice um, software engineering and making your software open source. And it's done in such a way that you don't have to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Everything is automated 
to the to death. So there's a, they've got a bot which controls different actions and then opens and closes things and builds files for you. And they've shown it, you know, that you can have a journal, a professional looking journal with basically zero money. I think each paper costs about a pound and that's just for the cross ref charges. Oh, that's really interesting. But when you hear how much certain journals claim that uh, publishing each article costs. They use Markdown and LaTeX and these kind of uh, formatting tools so that it immediately gets formatted into a lovely uh, publishable consistent style but do they still have the copy editing side to be done after it's or no there's absolutely none Mm. it's just automated because you do it in a particular style Mm -hmm. if it compiles and passes some automated checks then it's okay interesting i think the the summary really is that it's an absolutely critical part of the publishing process really really important but it's complicated. There's lots of different types of peer review. There's a lot of work involved in identifying the reviewers and work for the reviewers themselves to try and give constructive feedback that will really strengthen the paper. But it is an opportunity to make the published research in your field as strong as possible and to support your colleagues. can be controversial because of this whole um, the level of profit that can be made on a system that's got such enormous parts of the work done for free by academics. But it's also rapidly changing and really exciting to see what way all these new types of peer review take us. Thank you for listening to Research Pages. Please rate and subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify or whatever platform you use. The views expressed in this podcast are our own opinions and do not represent the views of the University of Cambridge or the Quadrum Institute.